0: Chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. Um, Listen, as we get caught up, uh, here at Stone Oak, we preach through books of the Bible together. Uh, And so so what that means is that we just kind of walk through books. Literally, we're not very creative. We walk through books of of the Bible together, and uh, we have been walking through Romans Uh, for quite a while. Actually, I looked back about two years. We've been walking through Romans, uh, little by little, step by step, and we get to walk back into it this morning. Now, uh, along the way, we do take little little breaks. Like every summer, we spend some time in Psalms and other books, but by and large, we come back. um, We've come back to Romans for a while, and I'm excited to get into it this morning. And and we've already walked all the way through to Romans 11, so we've we've gone quite a bit of ways. Um, But I want to look through here because there's a few things here before we actually get to get to our text. Um, First, each week here at Stone Oak, we record our 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 sermons, our teachings. Uh, We record them on audio and video, and our hope is that they would be a resource for you. That's why we do it. and if they would serve you well, we want to invite you. You can go to our website. They're all going to be listed there. We list them by book, by chapter, by verse, by title. It's all there. And so if, there's, if you're joining us now, dropping into 11, it's like, man, I wish I would have heard six or I want to go into nine, whatever it might be. Um, they're all there. So I want to give you that as a resource. You can check that out. Um, the second thing is that it's always difficult to step back into a book like this always difficult. Um, It's written by Paul. It's one letter, one long unfolding letter. And what Paul does is it's meant to be read as one letter. So it kind of builds on and builds on and builds on and builds on. And so what it's easy to do in Romans is to take little power verses in Romans and just kind of be content with just saying, boom, there it is, and building your whole whole framework on one verse. Uh, But the way Paul has done is he has written one letter that kind of unfolds and unpacks little by little as you look at this letter. Um, so what that means is in order to understand all of the little parts, it helps to see the bigger picture and to see the big, the whole book. Uh, in order to, to rightly see the parts, it's, it's, it's important that we're able to kind of rightly take in the whole letter. So uh, this leads me to something um, I want to invite you to what we're calling the Romans Challenge. I don't know who this kid is. I just thought he was awesome. Uh, Just looks so surprised, right? Um, But the Romans Challenge. Now, you might have done this with us already. Uh, You may have never done this. You may have not done it previously. You might have any idea of what I'm talking about right now. But um, it takes the average reader under an hour to complete Romans from start to finish. Uh, Under an hour. So... What the Romans challenge is, just to be as simple as possible, is to challenge you to carve an hour out of your, out of your life to get your Bible, rather, either in, in audio form or, or text, and to literally read or listen to Romans from start to finish in one sitting. That's the, the Romans uh, challenge. Now, to be specific, I, I researched this. It takes the average reader 52 minutes and 37 seconds. I believe. I don't know how they found that. Some of you are like, I'll beat that, but don't do that. Um, the key is not speed here. But anyway, um, I can say with confidence, just pastorally, that you will not, after having done this, if you, if you do this, that you will not finish this challenge and then say to yourself, I really regret having done that. I wish I wouldn't have spent an hour doing that. I can say with complete confidence that this will be time well spent. And so I want to challenge you. If you've never done this before, or if you've already done it before and want to do it again, join us, Romans Challenge. Just read this book one, I mean, from start to finish in one sitting. It goes great with coffee, um, just the way I I like to do it. So uh, last thing I'll say, and then we'll get started. Uh, Last thing I want to say is this book is not only... um, just a, a letter, but as you're going to notice as we walk through this, it is extremely rich and extremely deep. Uh, it is a theological explosion as you read this book. And, and we are going to walk through some of the most foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. Um, we are going to walk through this book, and, and there's just so much here. And listen, as a church... We walk through this book with humility and with grace for each other. This book is going to maybe cause you to think some things and ask some things, and maybe one of your brothers and sisters might see something different. I, I don't know. We approach this book with humility and grace for each other. We get the great privilege of coming to this every week. And we talk about this a lot, that we, we hold to this, we stand to this, we stand under this, that this is our authority. I, I, I wanted to say something else about our Bibles, though. You know what else this does? It gives us a glimpse into the profound things of God. I have a story that I want to share as we get this kicked off. Uh, I had a professor in seminary that shared this with me, and it latched itself. It, I can't shake this story. Um, but he shared a story of when he was a missionary in South America. I believe I don't remember where exactly, uh, but he was sharing the story of when he was a missionary, and the only way to get around was through this train car that took him through just beautiful mountainous, lush uh, landscapes. And and he would tell this this story of the of the train ride, and you would sit into this in this cabin, and and the train literally. Because of the terrain, would be carved um, into mountains, like carved in. You would just whoop and go into this tunnel, and and he would describe the the train trick, the train ride, as being primarily dark. Like looking out the windows is just black, but you would get used to it. You're in this train car, and it's filled with the fluorescent lights, and you're you're doing your thing. But out the windows, it would just be dark, and you would get used to it. And then you know what would happen? All of a sudden, out of nowhere and without warning, light would flood into the windows. And you would look out the windows and just be overwhelmed with how beautiful that is. How beautiful the scenery, the sun, the light would flood the cabin and it's beautiful and overwhelming. And then back to the dark, back to the cabin lights. My professor said that approaching this is a lot like that. And he would remind us, he said, we spend most of our lives, we get used to spending most of our lives in the darkened cabin, seeing what's in front of us. And, and all of a sudden, we have these moments in this when this just seems to open our eyes to something so much more beautiful and deep, and it's like whew, light floods the cabin, and we get a glimpse. And, and my prayer for our time in Romans is that this would give us a glimpse into some of the profound things of God, that our eyes would be opened to the truth about who he is, the truth about who we are, and the truth about the real world that's outside of the cabin, that is my prayer through this time. So with that said, I want to dive in. I want to dive in and uh, get settled in. Listen, it is really hard to jump back into a letter like this. So here's what I'm going to do. I promise I'm not going to keep us here all day. I promise. Um, you ready for Romans in 1 through 10 in three minutes? <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. Um, uh, here's the deal. Paul starts with this foundational statement right off the bat. This is this is this is Romans 101 if you will and it's right in Romans chapter 1 16 verse 17 says so, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith and then this right here as it is written the righteous Shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Listen, here's the core problem that Romans addresses. The, The core problem is that our God is perfect and holy and righteous, and He's perfect and holy and righteous all the time. There's never a moment where He's less perfect, holy, and righteous. He is perfect, holy, and righteous. All the time. And at the same time, now Paul tells us what we already know about ourselves, which is we are not. That we have all sinned, that we all fall short of the glory of God. That there is no one righteous, no not one, as Paul says in Romans. So what do we do with that? That's the core problem of Romans. A holy God and a sinful people, what do we do? How can that gap... Be, be bridged. As a fallen people, how can we stand before a holy God? Because we know a couple things to be true. Like I said, God can't be less than perfect. We also know that God can't just kind of like bend his standards a little bit to let you in. That's not the kind of God we serve. And we also know that you can't be good enough on your own. We can't, we on our own can't. So what now? And this is where the word of God pierces through. The gospel pierces through, meets us where we are. And Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The gap is bridged in Christ. The, the, that Christ bridged the gap because he is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous, and he's never less than perfect, less than holy, or less than righteous. He bridges that gap, and now in faith, his righteousness is credited to us, and the gap is bridged. And so, and get this, it's not a new plan. This wasn't like, okay, if you read, you know, three-fourths of this, that messed up. So good thing God gave us the last fourth, so that now we have a new plan. No, no. Paul is very clear, this is the plan. He ties it all the way back to Abraham who says he was counted righteous because of faith. This is not a new plan, not a new plan. And so because of this, we have a huge question here that we need to unpack. Since we are saved by grace through faith, and since the only way we were ever saved is by grace through faith, then what do we do with works in the law? What do we do with the works and the law? So Paul then is now shows us in this letter how the law simply reveals our great need for a Savior. And then he walks us through. In Christ, we are new creations. We're dead to sin, alive to God, heirs of God. We have hope and a future glory. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul walks us through. This is the sovereign plan of God. And so here's the thing, the last thing I'll bring out before we get to 11. The righteousness shall live by faith means that our standing before God is never and has never been based on ethnicity, works, or anything else. Nothing else. So whether you are Jew or Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, whatever, we, when we stand before our God, there is no other thing behind which we can stand. There's no other thing. You can't stand before him and say, well, I was born in the right family or I went to the right church or whatever. There's nothing that will make you righteous other than Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is why Paul says The righteous shall live by faith. And so what went wrong then? We we have to ask, because as we read this, we read this Old Testament story just unfolding. And we ask, like, hey, God chose a people. He called the people to be his light to the nations, to be the city on a hill. What happened? And so Paul draws our attention uh, in, in chapter 10, right before our text today, of Israel's unbelief. And how on earth could that be? So as we get to chapter 11, I want to read the finishing verses of chapter 10, and then we will be off to the races. Paul quotes Isaiah in verse 20, and he says, I have been found, this is God, I have been found by those who did not seek me. That is the Gentiles. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Again, that is the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. In verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. After all of this, did they miss it? Did, they, did it fail? Did they not see? Did they not understand? That gets us to our text today. This gets us to our text. Verse 1 of chapter 11. I told you that wasn't bad. It wasn't three minutes, but it wasn't bad, all right? I won't do this every week, but now we're here, all right? Um, um, Verse one, I ask, Paul says, I ask then, it's a good question here, has God rejected his people by no means? So you're going to notice all throughout Romans, especially if you read it in one sitting, that this is one of... Paul's favorite ways of making a point. He's going to ask the question that's boiling up in your heart. He's going to ask it, jump out ahead of you, and then he's just going to answer it emphatically, most of the time with a by no means. You have to yell it, exclamation point. You got to yell. Um, by no means. And so we see that same thing here. He, says, he asks, like, Has God rejected his people? Did they, whoops, and it's all done? We're done. He says, by no means, then listen to his point here. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's saying, look, I myself am a part of God's chosen people. I myself am an Israelite. He has not rejected me, so by no means, he says. By no means. Now, I'm going to just read the, the The portion of the text that we're going to cover this morning all in one sitting, so I'm just going to read it through and then we're going to kind of pick it apart slowly okay so we're going to go up to verse six this is what this is what God's word says it says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew that's awesome um, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to to God against Israel lord they have But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, we're going to unpack this because this text is so rich. It's so important. And it's going to help us be able to put together everything and make sense out out of this. And it's also important, by the way, for us to understand as the church today, right now, This is so important to understand as we see ourselves. So I want to take a moment to bring out an idea called remnant. Um, I'm going to make up a phrase. Remnant theology. Don't look it up because if it exists, I cannot vouch for it. This is my own making up here. Okay, And and remnant theology, the way I'm I'm defining that is, is this. God has a people within the people. God has a people within the people. He has a chosen people within his chosen people. Remnant theology. And you hear that and you think, Pastor, that sounds super confusing. Like real, real, real confusing here. What are you talking about? And how on earth could this random made-up thing be as important as you're, you're, you're saying? I want you to follow with me here. Because as I said, I do believe this is really important. God has a remnant. God had a remnant back then with Israel. God has a remnant today with his people. Now, um, let me share with you where we're going with this whole idea. My goal this morning as we dig in this text is to show you, first of all, how this idea of remnant is all throughout Scripture. Uh, but, but second, I want to share three just really important truths from this and, and from our text. And then third, I, I just want us to remember and to see why this matters so deeply. That's where we're headed to get today. So first, I want to start off with just seeing this in Scripture. Um, if you remember... Way back in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And and right there, he calls Abraham to himself, and he makes this promise. And and he he, he says, you're going to be my people. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And you're going to be a blessing to the nations. This was God's promise. These people, the Jewish people, became God's chosen people. God's chosen people. So here's my question, though. As we look back in our our text, I want us to be very careful here. The question is, just because you were ethnically Jewish, does that mean that you were, by your ethnicity, saved? Saved. Does it mean you were going to be saved? So just because you are a part of God's chosen people, does that mean you are a part of God's elect? That's the question. That is the, the question. In a similar way, let's push this forward. Uh, today, um, just because... You're a part of the church, a member of the church, attend church, give, serve, and all of that just because that is you and you're a part of the church. Does that mean that you are saved? I want to say this, break the silence. Of course not! Uh, Of course not, because we know that salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. It's not based on what family you were born into. It's not based on the color of your skin. It's not based on your bank account, your standing in society. It's not based on your church membership. It's not based on any of that. It's based on Jesus and Jesus alone. So I want to show you the way that the church historically has taught this. And and I think this will help us today. If it doesn't, just indulge me. Um, But this is the way the church has seen this. They've broken this down into what they call the visible church. What does that mean? It means it's what we can see. It means, I mean, with the human eye, what we can see. Because we can't see the heart. We don't know. We don't know what is invisible to us. So the visible church is what we can see. Who is here? Who says that they follow Jesus? Who serves and walks with the church? That is historically what the church has called the visible church. Now, within that, the church has also recognized something that has been called the invisible church. And it's exactly what you think. This is is not what we can see, but it's what our God sees. It's what our God sees, that there is, to use the word, a remnant. Within God's chosen people, there is the remnant, the chosen people. Um, This is historically how the church has taught this idea of remnant. And, and if you notice, if you think about it in a very similar way, church, in a very similar way, the same is true for Israel and the Jewish people. God has a people, ethnic Israel, the Jewish people. And this is what we can see. Within that, within that, there is a people There is a remnant, to use the word. There is a remnant. Now, there are so many places in Scripture where we can see this. But I think the most, the single most clear and powerful place that we see this actually just came a few verses earlier in our text in Romans. So if you, you don't have to turn with me, but it's kind of easy to. So if you want to, you can. Um, In chapter 9 of Romans, in verse 6, Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, because it doesn't fail. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. What? And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. There is a remnant. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh. It's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Church, that is remnant theology. That is remnant theology. That's what we see here in our text, that there is a people that God has chosen out from among his his people. And to that, I'd like to give us just three really important truths about this remnant that we see here in this text. And as we work through this, I think we're going to see how much this deeply matters to us, how much this matters. Um, The first truth, truth, truth number one, is that God knows his remnant. God knows his remnant. Verse 2 says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's not rejected his people for whom he foreknew. Uh, This idea of knowing, listen, listen, we might not be able to know this, but our God does. And what this says is that God will not reject or forget his remnant. He knows eternally. God says, look, I have not nor will I ever reject my people. God's remnant is foreknown by God, eternally known by God. Now, we could say so much about this little power-packed word, foreknowledge, Um. We could say a lot about the fact that God knows it all, the sovereign predestination election. In fact, we already have said a lot about that. Again, if you want to take a listen to Romans 9 specifically, you can. Um, But without re-preaching those texts, um, here's what we know from Scripture. That God knows his people perfectly. He knows his people perfectly, completely, and eternally. He knows his people from the foundation of the world. He knows his people. In fact, I want you to take this, just go with me here. On the cross, God knew exactly who he was purchasing. He knew exactly who he was purchasing. And our God does not have buyer's remorse for what he purchased. He knew. He knew. In Christ, he knew. He foreknew. And those he foreknew, our text says he will never reject. Let's not rush past this. For for those who are in Christ, who have placed your faith in Christ, I, I gotta hear you. This, I gotta tell you, this is probably the, Greatest thing I get to tell you this morning. God will not change his mind on you. He's not going, whoops, I missed it. No, he does not change his mind. Those who are his, he foreknew. He foreknew. No matter, he knew what he purchased on the cross so that no matter what you face, no matter what you're going through, no matter what your life looks like, no matter the things you endure, I want you to hear me, he will not ever abandon you. He will not ever change his mind on you. He will not ever pull out the rug from you. Uh, He knows you better than you know yourself, and he loves you better than you love yourself. Like that. He will not reject those who he knows, those who are foreknown by him, So for the Israelites here in this text, that means that God was not going to change his mind on them. That's really good news. For the Israelites in this text, God's not going to change his mind on them. He's not going to abandon them because the others have gone wonky. He's not going to abandon them. He's not going to reject reject them. He's patient. He's perfect in his patience. Like perfect in his patience. And today, if we follow this out because we know the character of our God, this means that God's not going to change his mind on you even when others around you are acting wonky. I said it once. i got to say it again. Um, Wonky. He will not abandon, reject. He knows his remnant. By grace through faith, we, in Christ, we are his remnant. God knows his remnant. Say that. yeah, amen. That's truth number one. Truth number two, you are not alone. Let me add to this, even when you feel like it. That's an important one, because what we're going to see in our text. Our, our, our text points us back to the story of Elijah. Um, it says, you know, when Elijah is appealing to God against Israel, verse 2, verse 3, they've killed all the prophets. they I'm adding the tone here. So so, um, they've demolished all the altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. I think he sounded kind of like that when he said it. This is recounting a really difficult moment for Elijah, actually. He was in this, this moment. It points back to 1 Kings 19 when he was running literally for his life from Jezebel. And he's just crying out, crying out. He's looking, and he's saying, Lord, what are you doing? Have you ever asked that? He's he's looking at his situation. He's saying, Lord, have you forgotten me? Have you ever asked that? And especially notice the last phrase. I alone am left. And they seek my life. Alone. Have you ever felt that? Alone. Abandoned. Have you ever felt the loneliness of going through something really difficult? Have you ever cried out to God and felt silence and thought, I am alone, I am left alone, looked around, no one's walking with you? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that? This is what Elisha was saying I am your remnant, God, and I am alone. I got to ask you though, even though he felt like that, was it true? Was it true? Was the loneliness he was feeling true? Well, verse 4 says, here's what God says to him. I have kept for myself 7,000. 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to bow. God says, you feel alone. You're actually among 7,000 men. Not to mention the women and the children. You think you're alone, but you're actually not alone. You catch that. The, Elijah, I'm alone. There's no one else here. And God's like, actually, Elijah, look around. There's 7,000. There's 7,000 with you. Listen, the enemy would want nothing more than for you to feel alone, to believe the lie that as the remnant of God, that you are alone, as part of the people of God as part of the remnant you are not alone ever right. not only will Jesus not leave you God has a remnant yeah. you are not alone you are called to Christ and you are called into a family into a people you are not ever alone and I don't I I don't know about you but There has been times in my life where it is very easy to feel alone, very easy to feel completely alone. Church, you are not alone. If you're in that place today, you are not alone. Even if, even as you you feel like it, my prayer is to be a church where you can look around and realize I'm not walking alone. I'm not alone. So, church, God knows his remnant, truth number one. Truth number two, in Christ, you are not alone even when you feel like it. Third truth here is this. You are chosen by grace. Now, I want you to do me a favor. Um, Do me a favor here. If you've been following Jesus for a while, if uh, you are familiar with all of the Christianese and the Christian jargon that we say, I'm going to ask you, please try to take yourself out of autopilot right now. You've probably heard this before. Switch out of that autopilot. Let's approach this and just see, push through this and and see this with fresh eyes. You are chosen by grace. You were chosen by grace. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 5, 6. Um, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant. Chosen by grace. Not by works, not by what you do. Like, In other words, you're not chosen because of what you can do for Jesus. Like, You're not chosen because you're really awesome and productive and special and and all of that. You're not chosen because of what you bring to this table. And and more than that, you're not chosen even because of your ethnicity. You are not chosen because of the family into which you were born. You were chosen by grace, Paul says. And because of this, verse 6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, now, this is a weird sentence, and, and I don't want to skip over it. There's this weird phrase, no longer, in this. You could read that and think, wait a second. Pastor, you said that this story has always been, this has always been the plan, but here it says no longer. Does that mean that it, we used to be, but now we're no longer? What is going on? Listen, I want us to be very careful here, because you are not saved by your works you have never been saved by your works. Push that forward. Since the fall, actually, no human being ever, if you're human, no human being has ever been saved by their works. No, not one. So, if it were up to our works, there would be no salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, and it has always been by grace through faith. In Christ alone. This is not a new plan. This is the plan. Actually, we've said this before. You are actually saved by work. It's just not yours. You're saved by the completed work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You're saved by work. It's not yours. And it's never been about yours. So when Paul says, no longer here, He's not saying, hey, it was once about works and now no longer. He Can't mean that. He cannot mean that. Um, Because all throughout this letter so far, it has been very clear in my three-minute summary, uh, the the righteous shall live by faith. This has been the plan. So what is Paul saying? Um, What Paul is saying here is this. If not for God's grace then it would be about your works and there would be no salvation. So if God did not choose you, step into human history. If the word did not become flesh and dwell among you, give his life for you, then it would rest on your shoulders. And by the way, you can't shoulder that weight. We would never choose him. We would never reach him. If not for God's grace, then it would be up to us. But church, because of God's grace, because he chose us in his grace, it is no longer about our works, but about his. This is what Paul is getting us to see. He says, Christians, brothers, sisters, but if, since, because it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, then he says otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Let's not push past this. Uh, again, it's easy to slip into autopilot because grace is, we hear this all the time. We talk a lot about grace, and for good reason. Um, but don't slip into Christianese on me, okay? Come back. Come back. And let's look at this. What is grace? And, and, and we say it all the time, but what is grace? Church, simply put, grace in this context is unearned favor, unmerited favor. It's favor you didn't earn, you didn't work for, and it's not based on what you even will do in the future. It's unearned, completely and totally. So this is why Paul says, it is no longer on the basis of works because grace would no longer be grace. Okay, this might be weird, but think about this. Think about it like this. Saying earned grace is a lot like the phrase, working vacation. You know what I mean? Um, that's a nonsensical statement. Like, what is a vacation? It's a time to break from work. That's what it is. So to work on vacation is not a vacation. It's a change of office location. That's all it is. It just, it's nonsensical. So to put it bluntly. Vacation ceases to be vacation when you work in it. In the same way, grace ceases to be grace when you work for it. It defeats the whole definition and meaning. It defeats it all. And this is what Paul means when he says church, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Um, It makes no sense. Grace is the unearned favor of God. And you have been chosen in Christ based on the work of Christ and not yours. Based on the merit of Christ, not yours. You have been chosen in grace. And and I want to talk here about why this matters so much. When we get this, when we get that God knows his remnant, he has a remnant and he knows us. When we get that we are not alone, no matter how alone you might feel. And when we get that we are chosen by grace, called by God in grace and not because of our works. When we get this and two things happen. First, we are, under, we are able to understand the character of our God, who our God is, that he loves us perfectly, called us to himself because he is good, not because you were, that he demonstrated his great love for you while you were dead in your sins, sending Christ to die for you, calling us to himself, offering us forgiveness, justifying us through Christ, sanctifying us through his spirit, when we get this we get a better picture of who our God is. And the second thing is when we understand this we are we are able to better understand who we are. Our identity in Christ. Church in Christ. Take this in. You are fully known. There's no dark corner. That sounds terrifying if it's not followed up with the next statement I'm about to make. You are fully known, and there is no dark corner. And at the same time, you are perfectly loved. Forgiven, called, saved. You can know that you are in Christ, that you are loved. You can know that you are in Christ, that you're a new creation. That's your identity. And when we understand Grace. Here's where this starts to play out. We can stop living our lives trying to make God like us. We can stop living our lives trying to make others accept us. We can understand who we are, and instead, we can live our lives from a place of acceptance and love. We can live our lives because we know we are loved. We can live our lives because we know we are accepted. Not in order to earn it, but because we are. That is identity. When we understand this, we know who we are. Christ fully knows us. And fully loves us. And that church is freedom. (laughs) That church is absolute freedom. In Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, you are his remnant chosen by grace. That is the gospel. And that changes everything. Everything changes with this. And uh, listen... Going back to the train car for a moment. Um, we talked about it earlier. It's, it's easy to live our lives used, used and accustomed to what's in that cabin, what we see in front of us, division, maybe doubt, fear, anxiety. We see brokenness. Things are not the way they should, they should be. We see, um, we see broken relationships. We, in the train, we see life in the fallen world, and it's really easy to get used to that, and to think that's it. That's it. My prayer this morning is that this begins to open our eyes, not to a fantasy world, but to the real world. That this would open our eyes to what is beyond what you see in front of you today. That this would open our eyes, that that it would be like going out of the tunnel, light flooding in that overwhelmed feeling that you get when you see something beautiful appear out of nowhere that light is grace and this is that light because once the light floods in like it changes everything you can't unsee that. No matter how dark the cabin is, once you've seen it, you know it's there. My prayer is that this would open our eyes.